greetings this morning in the Master's name. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 starts out with the, um, with the statement, Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. So he's saying, what I'm going to tell you now, this is the main point, this is the point we've been making. And so I, I want to read uh, chapter 8 and uh, look at it maybe briefly, and if we have time, maybe 9 also. So let's read chapter 8. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is a necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he, if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he, and this is talking about Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry, by which also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So now here he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 34. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regard them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So the main point, or the point he's been making, is about the high priest. Jesus is our high priest. We have such a high priest. And when he says we have such a high priest, he means we have, this is the high priest that's been described. We have the same words there in verse 26 of the previous chapter. For such a high priest became us. So such a high priest is the high priest we've been talking about. When he's saying such a high priest, he's just referring to, all that he's described already. And he says that we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne. That goes back to chapter 1, where he, uh, it's verse 3 in chapter 1. Um, should be able to quote that. But who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So this high priest is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. So he's set on the right hand. And uh, 
Maybe I'll just read a little bit here from uh, someone's thoughts about all this. We have such a high priest. There is a triumphant note in the words we have. They are an answer to the Jewish people who taunted the early Christians with the words, We have the tabernacle. We have the priesthood. We have the offerings. We have the ceremonies. We have the temple. We have the beautiful priestly garments. The believer's confident answer is, and of course, see, we have Christ. Yes, you have the shadows, but we have the substance. You have the types, but we have the fulfillment. You have the ceremonies, but we have Christ. You have the pictures, but we have the person. And our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on heaven. No other high priest ever sat down in recognition of a finished work, and none ever held such a place of honor and of power. That's, we have such a high priest. That's the high priest he's talking about. So then in verse 3, he's talking about the responsibilities of the high priest. Every high priest, that's his responsibility to offer the gifts and sacrifices and so on. And so Christ as a priest, he needed to offer something too. Well, chapter 9, and other, I think it's chapter 9 and, and the other chapters, but Christ offered his own blood. And so he offered something better, something more powerful, something more effective than all the sacrifices that, that the priest offered. And uh, it says in verse 4, that if Jesus were on earth, if he were on earth, he couldn't be an earthly priest. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. So he couldn't even been an earthly priest. But he's beyond an earthly priest. Um, he's in the heavens, not on earth. His, his priestly work, he sat down at the right hand of the throne on high. That's where his work is. Now, verse 5, the priest on earth serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. And, and when God told Moses, I really wonder what Moses saw. God told Moses, he said, now you make the tabernacle exactly like what you saw. It's to be a pattern of what's in heaven. And I really wonder what Moses saw. And I wonder, in a way, this pattern the earthly tabernacle was a pattern what was it a pattern of well we have all these types and shadows but I still really wonder what Moses saw um, Exodus let's see it's Exodus 25 40 where God told Moses that uh, let's see here Yeah, yeah, it's got all these directions here in uh, in Exodus in chapter twenty-five. All these all these directions about how to do everything, and then he says, "And look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee on the mount." Moses had a lot to remember, all that stuff that was showed him. Um, a pattern is a model of something that's already in existence. And this earthly tabernacle was a, a shadow. 
was a pattern, a shadow, it says. And it talks about, um, see, which verse is it? I'm trying to find it. Um, about the true. Where's that word true? Yeah, it's in verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary. This is uh, this is Christ, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. See, that's in contrast to the earthly tabernacle, the pattern, the shadow. Christ is a minister of the true tabernacle. Well, that's some of what Moses saw, I guess. Um, then in the in next chapter, uh, in verses 9, well, okay, 10 and 11, I guess it is, uh, all these earthly things, but Christ, verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And so, of course, the earthly tabernacle, they constructed it. They made it all this, you know, in the Old Testament, tells exactly how they were to make it. But it says this this tabernacle that Jesus represents, or actually that functions in, it's, 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 it's not made with hands. Well, and we can kind of understand that. Um, a writer, a writer said, why does the writer emphasize this so forcefully? Simply to impress on the minds of any who might be tempted to go back to Judaism that they were leaving the substance for the shadows when they should be going on from shadow to substance. In other words, I think we've talked about that before, but it, it seemed like maybe the Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, they may have been, they may have been a little bit discouraged Um the Judaism was still going on, and they had all they had the temple. Herod's temple was really a marvelous thing, uh, quite the structure. They had that, and they had all the ceremonies, they had all the ritual. Actually, ritual. Uh, well, that's a sideline thing. But I was talking to some people that you know have left Anabaptism to go more to uh, uh, Anglican and Episcopalian approach, and you know what's appealing? Well, it's the ritual. It's the it's a liturgy and so on that appeals to people. And so, um, so anyway, so what did they have? They didn't have any of that. The Christians, all they had was Christ. But see, they had the substance. If they had Christ, they had the substance. And so the writer is saying, you don't want to move from substance back to shadow. You should be moving from shadow to substance. And, um, okay. So, and then in verse 6, we have a more excellent ministry, a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So, so what we have in Christ, of course, is better. Uh, Hebrews is the book of better things. Now, a pattern, another definition for pattern, a representation in the material realm of spiritual facts. So the tabernacle, the earthly way, the, all the way they did things in the Old Testament, a representation in the material realm of spiritual facts. Now, my mind went off in another tangent, um, but maybe it has some spiritual application. Um, there's this book that was written in the late 1800s called Flatland. It was uh, it was uh, actually a satire on English society at that time. But Flatland, we talked about the people lived in two dimensions, a two-dimensional world. The main character was square. The women were lines and the men were polygons. 
And so they lived in this two-dimensional world, and the book talks about that. Well, once upon a time, Square had a dream where he actually went to Lineland, I believe it was called, Flatland, Lineland. Anyway, and that that was a one-dimensional world where the men were lines and the women were lustrous points, okay? Um, Well, but then sphere came into Square's life. And of course, a sphere is three-dimensional. Uh, well, and so he couldn't understand it for a long time, but then finally he kind of got onto it. And he, anyway, when they tried to explain to the people in Flatland about the three-dimensional world, which was called, uh, what was it called? I think I wrote that down. Spaceland. Yeah, Spaceland. And, well, of course, the rulers in Flatland, that was heresy, so they persecuted the people that tried to explain about square uh, about the Spaceland. Um, but, but okay, so that is, that's very interesting from a mathematical point. He wasn't writing it so much from that standpoint. He was just a satire on English society. Um, but then dimensions. So... We, have a, we live in a three-dimensional world. Actually, they say maybe four-dimensional. Okay, the three dimensions, you know. Okay, so flat land was just uh, length and width, like a piece of paper. Like, like in school, if you draw something, if you try to draw a box on this paper, you have to draw your lines, and then you draw some other lines around, and you kind of make your marks. And you try to illustrate a box, but it's you really, it's, it's just on, it's just in two dimensions. It's not really a box because a box, you know, you've got, you got width and width, width and length and height. Uh, so you got three dimensions. The fourth dimension, time. Uh, we couldn't exist without time. We're existing in time, but it's kind of we're kind of fixed. See, in space, like you can walk down the street, or you can get on your bicycle, or you can get in your car, and you can travel through space. We can't travel through time. We can't go back to 1910 just like that. And what life was like then, or we'd go up to 2045 and or 2145 rather, and what life would be like there. We can't travel through time. So we actually kind of live in a three-dimensional world, but we have a fourth dimension time that we have to exist. But be all that as it may, what I'm getting at is there's there's another dimension. There's another dimension. It's it's a, it's a spiritual dimension. And it, it's it's there, but we 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 only see it dimly. We 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 live in a material world, and our bodies are material. See, God is a spirit. They worship Him, worship Him in spirit and truth. So we have a spirit, so we can connect with the spirit world. And everybody, I mean, the way we're born, we're born with that. I mean, if you read the book Eternity in Their Hearts about these societies, these heathen, these primitive societies that lost the concept of the true God, but they still have these concepts and some of these leftovers from the Old Testament and so on. They have these uh, these things in their society that show, and, and they're always reaching out to God. You know, decide any society, any civilization has always got these processes where they've reached out to God in some way or other to try to find God. And so man has this sense of the spiritual dimension um, but it's still dim. 
it's still dim. You see, I think when we, we, we don't really know a lot that's going on in the spiritual world. We know there's things that's going on, but we really don't know a lot about it. And, and actually, I thought about reading uh, this from Haley's Bible Handbook. I probably read it before, but um, it's actually um, on uh, his comments on Matt, Luke 18 were on those verses about the important and the persistent widow when she kept going to the judge. And then Jesus said about, he was talking about prayer. I mean, he need to be persistent in prayer. But this is what Halley said in Halley's Bible Handbook about that. He said, when Jesus talked about prayer and faith, strange as some of his words may sound to us, he knew what he was talking about. He came out of the unseen world and he was perfectly familiar with forces and powers that play behind the veil that we know nothing about. We ought not to be too determined to explain everything that Jesus said about prayer so as to bring it within the range of our finite understanding <clears throat> and so on. But in other words, yes, Jesus came out of the spirit world. He understood what was going on in the spirit world. We, we only are very faintly aware of what's going on in the spirit world. I think in heaven with our new bodies, we'll have a different set of senses. In other words, we have, uh, we have our five senses, you know, hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting and feeling and so we live in that world and i think our spiritual bodies will have senses we'll be able to understand things that we can't now and sense things it's going to be all different but okay so <clears throat> i guess what i'm thinking though see jesus all this old testament stuff and it had its place. It had its. It had. A, it, there was a purpose in it. But it was. The pattern was so inferior to what it represented. And so Jesus is the high priest of the true. The true and the perfect and the better. Um, so well, I must go on. So then verse 7 says, If the first covenant had been faultless, there should, there should no place have been sought for the second. Well, that's pretty obvious. If something is perfect, you can't improve on it. There wouldn't be no need for a second. Um, and then verses 8 to 12, like I said, quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And um, the, just one phrase there in verse 10 I want to mention where God says... Um, He's going to put the law in their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And you can study that phrase. Um, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. I have several verses here. Maybe I won't bother to read them, but uh, you can find that over and over where God says, I want to be their God. I, I, I want them to be my people. God is looking for a people, and he wants to be their God. and That's his heart cry. And, uh, yeah, and that's still his heart cry. But this covenant he's going to make, and it's the new covenant, it's our covenant now. And uh, it's the law in our minds and in our hearts. And, and, and it goes on to say, they're not going to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all know me from the least to the greatest. And so 
I don't know what you make of that. I mean, uh, we uh, we have Sunday school and we have preaching, and if everybody's got it, and they don't need to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, so why do we have that? Uh, well, I mean, we look at you can look at these some of these Old Testament saints like Moses and David and Daniel and Isaiah, and we can say. I wish I had the connection with God that they did. But that was Old Testament. There was something about, in general, things were outward. The, 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 the ceremonial law, all that, it was, it was outward. And, and those, all those things they went through, all the processes they went through, all the sacrifices they went through, it was basically to... Um, it was for, okay, so if they touched a dead body, they were supposed to do something, you know. And you had all these sacrifices for all these things, but it was, it was outward stuff. What, what sacrifice did they have for the inward stuff? Uh, it, it just wasn't there. Um, someone said it this way, the law could not deal effectively with sins. It provided for the atonement or the covering of sins, but not their removal. Its sacrifices made a man ceremonially clean, that is, they qualified him to engage in the religious life of the nation. But this ritual cleansing was external. It did not touch a man's inward life. It did not provide moral cleansing or give him a clear conscience. And that's exactly what it says in chapter 9, uh, where it, it says... Um, it talks about a, a, a clear conscience and so on. Uh, Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so the Old Testament, the Old Testament covenant, it showed the Old Testament law and what God put in place there on Mount Sinai and so on. It showed man to a certain extent who God was, how holy he was, and what's necessary to approach him and what they needed to do to be able to come before him and worship, it also showed, it, it not only showed them to a certain extent who God was, it showed them who man is. And it showed them that they could not take care of sins by themselves. They could not take care of sins with all these offerings and stuff they did. Something more was needed. And so it, it was a schoolmaster. It was a teacher to show them what they needed to get them ready for Christ. Uh, so it had its place. It fulfilled its purpose. It revealed a holy God and man's need for cleansing from sin so he could come into God's presence and that man could not do it but trying to be good. That was sort of an essence of the Old Testament covenant. Okay, now chapter 9. Let's read chapter 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was a candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold. 
wherein was a golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubim of glory, shattering the mercy seat, of which we could not now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, whilst the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled all likewise with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Uh, let's uh, let's turn back quickly to Leviticus 16. Uh, Leviticus 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two goat, two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him 
and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. I, I don't know. I guess you get the picture, but it says this is after the two sons of Aaron offered before the Lord when they weren't supposed to, and they died. And so now God tells Aaron, this is the way to do it. Oh, he tells Moses to tell Aaron, this is the way to do it. And, and you go into the holy place once a year, he says. Well, maybe that comes later. It says, uh, it says that he come not at all times in the holy place, uh, that he die not. So, okay, so Aaron had all these, this, uh, all the trappings, all these garments he had to put on, okay, just right. And then he had, he had to go in there. And so he, okay, and it, it told, well, actually in Hebrews, what we read, it told about what was in the holy place, the showbread and the, and so forth and so on, the, that table. And then it told what was in the holy of holies. And it talked about the altar. Well, the altar was actually outside the curtain, right outside the curtain of the Holy of Holies. But then when he went into the Holy of Holies, he took he took some of the fire from that altar and he put incense on it. And actually, when he went inside, now you know, inside in the Holy of Holies, it was, all that was in there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was this, it was this box. It was all gold covered and had the lid. That was, that was the uh, mercy seat. It had the cherubim over it, but the mercy seat. And then there was this, there was this glow over the mercy seat that represented the presence of God. And it seemed like when Aaron went in there with that incense, with that fire and that incense, it made a cloud. It made a cloud of smoke so he couldn't even see that, that, that glow. And he could only go in there once. And first of all, he had to do all this sacrificing for himself. Okay? So he could even get that close to the presence of God. And only once a year, okay? Okay, now, let's, let's go on. Yeah. Well, sort of, except that, that, okay, I think part of it is, the, is the, well, okay, that he sat down is that his work is finished. Their priestly work was never finished. They had to do it every year. In fact, in the holy place, they had to offer sacrifice every day. And then the Day of Atonement, they went into the holy place once a year, but they had to do it every year, every year. So how many years did they do it? Well, I never figured that out, but um, they just had to keep doing it. Jesus did it once, once for all. And actually, there's a song in our book, Once for All, O Brother Believer, and so on. That's in the church hymnal. But once for all, Jesus. And he, 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 that, so the veil was written. And so Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God. His sacrifice is done. In fact, I think there's, I think we read that. Um, uh, but he, he just did it once. And it took care of everything, uh, but but the but the the thing about Aaron only being able to go in there once a year, the high priest only being able to go in there once a year, and Christ when he died the veil was rent, 
And so he's sitting on the right hand of God, interceding for us now. And so we can go in 24-7, 365, which is a tremendous contrast to the high priest going in just once a year. The access we have to God, we talked about, we've talked about that before and going through these chapters, the access we have to God, we, uh, we, we can't really... Um, we can't really get a hold of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and what we have in Jesus Christ. It's just, I, I just don't think we, uh, I mean, we're li we, we've been living in the New Covenant time for 2,000 years, and, of course, we've been taught all this from all up, and we just take it for granted, and, and, and we don't even, we, uh, we, we kind of find it hard to take time to pray. When we have this access, we have this access to God, and we have this access to, well, yeah, to ask, and it should be given to you, and so on. And we have all these promises about asking. And like I say, we know so little about what's going on in the spirit world, but we can pray, and God knows, and Jesus knows. Well. Anyway, maybe I won't read the rest of this chapter. But anyway, the idea was, and going back there and reading that chapter, that's what they had. Now, look, which, which do you want? Do you want that? Or do you want what we have here in chapter 9? What Jesus did. You see the, the tremendous contrast and the blessings we have. And so what are we doing with it? I mean, the, the, the writer of the Hebrews, he was concerned about him not moving from substance back to shadow. But we have we have all we have we have all these privileges in Christ. What Christ has done for us, what God has provided for us. And what, what direction are we moving? Are we moving closer to God or are we moving further away? Under the Old Covenant, the Levitical high priest stood for only a short time in the most holy place of the tabernacle on just one day of the year. Under the New Covenant, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, continually pleading our case. The Old Testament priest stood before a symbol of God's presence, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, whereas Jesus is seated actually before God himself. The supreme function of any priest is to open the way to God for sinful human beings. The priest builds the bridge across which men and women can go into the very presence of God. So the Old Testament priest, that was his function. He was a mediator between God and man. Jesus is our mediator. We no longer need an earthly priest. We're all, we're a kingdom of priests. We're all priests, but Jesus is the one that's interceding for us. Now, I'm going to finish reading chapter 9. It was therefore necessary, verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heaven, the patterns, see, of things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves is better sacrifices than these, and that's Christ's sacrifice. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appointed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
and as it is appointed to men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin and salvation. It says in verse 22, almost all things are by the law purged without blood, without shedding of blood is no remission. So it says about Christ offering his own blood once. Uh, now I'm going to read something here from a magazine. My wife and I are administrators of a ministry to hurting girls. In the past, I was also involved in prison ministry. It is from these experiences that I write this article. During my involvement in prison ministry, I remember visiting a prison inmate and feeling like I was sitting with the most naive 28-year-old man I'd ever met. His eyes looked hollow. His face expressed the message that he was totally oblivious of spiritual realities. I thought, how will the gospel of Jesus Christ ever reach this young man? But I commenced to share God's word with this. But as I commenced to share God's word with this individual, an amazing thing took place. I began to see the eyes of his understanding being enlightened. I could tell things were beginning to register in his spirit. As I shared with him about repentance from his sin and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, he began to grab a hold of these truths. By the third time I visited him, he had gotten converted. The gospel had done its work, and he experienced freedom in Jesus Christ. This individual has a lengthy prison sentence and is still incarcerated today, but he has experienced forgiveness of his sins. We write to each other, and I periodically get to visit him. When he got converted, I was reminded of the scripture in Luke 4.18 that says Jesus came to recover sight to the blind. Praise be to his name. At the ministry here in our home, we see many deliverances of girls who are in bondage, from depression and suicide to physical and moral abuse, from demonic bondage to behavioral issues, these young ladies are finding freedom in Jesus Christ. The cross is truly the answer for all kinds of brokenness. Jesus truly came to forgive sin, heal the brokenhearted, and set the captives free. A scripture we often use in our ministry is Isaiah 53, 4-6. Jesus indeed has borne our griefs and sorrows and was wounded for our transgressions. As these young ladies give all their pain and sin to Christ, they find healing and forgiveness. We have seen so many of them find freedom. One example of a deliverance I clearly remember is of a young lady who came into our home in her sin and undoneness. We usually have two scheduled ministry sessions in the first week they come into our home. The one session is to hear the girl's life story and to give them some direction for all of that. Then we allow the girl to ponder things for a day or two. <clears throat> in the second session, we focus our working through things with the girl if she is prepared. By the time the second session came around for the young lady I referred to, she was ready to work through things except for one issue that she wanted to hold on to. But as my wife and I read to her the account of counting the calls from Luke 14 and got to verse 33 where it tells us that unless we're willing to forsake all that we cannot be his disciple, her demeanor suddenly changed. I can still see her looking up and saying, I guess this includes this issue I'm holding on to. Is that right? <clears throat> As she yielded to the Lordship of Christ in her life, a beautiful transformation took place. 
From that point until she left her home several months later, she was a beautiful picture of growth and development in Christ. Whether it is someone who has been wrecked and ruined by sin, such as the inmate in prison, or someone in bondage to sin through ignorance and willfulness, the ability of Christ to free a person from past sin and failures is very clear. We have seen many deliverances in our home from suicidal tendencies, demonic activities, satanic dreams, and all kinds of vices and sin. We have seen the power of Christ coming through in powerful, precious ways to heal, restore, and redeem. Jesus Christ is truly the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the answer to all of humanity's sin and woes. Let us continue to preach Christ. Let us lift up his name. It is Christ. It is not psychology. It is not self-help programs. It is not telling people to grit their teeth and try to do better. The answer is and always will be the gospel of Jesus Christ that frees us from our past of sin, failure, and pain. May we ever exalt his name, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because of the ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we may take heart in walking through the journey of life. Those who feel crushed and dejected and broken must remember that Jesus offered his blood for us, and now he is praying for us and pleading our cause before the Heavenly Father. And because we have this high priest, back to chapter 4, Jesus the great high priest is the heading of these last four three verses in in, in my Bible in that chapter. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's kneel for prayer.